Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Rick Body. And we're doing this for March 2018 and a very special edition of the EMJ. An incredibly special edition because it's celebrating the 50th anniversary of UK emergency medicine. Yeah, so we're a little bit late on this. Yeah, just a few months. <laughs> okay, so it was actually the end of 2017. But as part of the celebrations for EM50, as it's been known, we've put together a very special edition of the EMJ to celebrate what's gone on in 50 years. Because 50 years, speaking not necessarily just from experience, but 50 is very young. Would you agree? I Yeah, I very much agree, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, have, I may have a personal interest in that particular number. But it's also interesting. I'm almost the same age as emergency medicine. So I don't think there's a link there. But my colleague and somebody who you'll know very well was actually born on the same day that the Casualty Surgeons Association initially formed, which was the foundation of emergency medicine in the UK. Did you know this? No, I didn't, but it sounds like fate. No, it is. It's Cliff Reed. Honestly, yeah, amazing. So Cliff Reed out in um, Sydney now, a great friend of ours, a great friend of the phone world. And I'm sure if you listen to podcasts, you'll have definitely come across Cliff, either at Smack or in other things. He's actually 50 years old. Exactly. There is something weird about that. Yeah, very much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was destined to be an emergency physician, quite clearly. Absolutely. But moving Cliff to one side, which is always a bit of a challenge, um, we need to get back. What's so special about this edition? What, are, what has um, Ellen put together? Well, we've got a collection of really special articles written specifically for this occasion. So we start off, for example, with a really nice piece from Jonathan Marrow, who's a retired emergency physician, and he reflects on 50 years as an emergency physician. It's really interesting just to read his musings from uh, how he worked in a department with no consultants in emergency medicine to, at the end of his career, working in a department with 12 where virtually all of the hours of the day are covered. It's very different, isn't it, from those original days. So we talk about um, 1967 being the birth of emergency medicine. Actually, there were emergency physicians of a kind really knocking around from the 50s. I think the first one was appointed in Leeds, if I remember. Yeah, that was Maurice Ellis. Yes, and uh, there's an eponymous lecture which is named after him, which is um, at the, usually at the, is it the Spring Conference, I think? For yes, the, it is, yeah, that's right. So the eponymous lecture there, um, fantastic to reflect back. Now, emergency medicine didn't really exist back then. It was a surgical specialty, largely. Um, we've come an enormous way. And, and people like Jonathan Marrow, they must have seen a huge change over the years. Yeah, it's amazing to see uh, how times have changed, um, despite the tough winter that we've all had we must have all felt the pressure uh, actually um, it's quite heartening to see how we're all mucking in together and we're increasing the uh, delivery of emergency medicine through all of these hours with even more consultant delivered care. I think you're right I mean one of the really interesting things when you look at the data is we're just doing a lot more emergency medicine I know we feel very stressed at the moment and I don't want to undermine that it is really tough at times but the amount of emergency medicine we're doing and the scope of emergency medicine we're doing, you can see that transition through the articles in the in the journal this month, how it's changed. And to be quite honest, I mean, the job is almost unrecognisable from when I started. That's right, absolutely. And me too, as I would say so. Um, and in addition to Jonathan Marrow's reflections, if you're reading this issue of the journal, which you really should if you're interested in emergency medicine, make sure that you also read David Yates's reflections. He gives a narrative history of emergency medicine. He mentions those figureheads of emergency medicine like Morris Ellis. He also mentions people like uh, Herman Deleuze, who uh, founded the European Society of Emergency Medicine, USEM, and uh, Humpty Dumpty as well. 
I think he may have been one of my first... No, who... What? <laughs> Honestly, you have to read the article to find out the link. It doesn't make any sense. Actually, David <laughs> Yates, um, Professor David Yates, I think he was the first professor of emergency medicine in the UK. Um, he was my consultant when I was a, a specialist registrar and then an, an early consultant, actually, at Hope Hospital in Salford. A true inspiration and, and moved emergency medicine research really into the mainstream, together with Rod Little in Manchester at the MRC Institute before it was closed down, sadly. But he's still knocking around. I still see David around. He's still a figurehead and he's still very active in promoting research, which shows, I think, the longevity of some of these figureheads of the of the specialty. Yes, that's right. And um, on that note, in terms of research, you should also check out the article on the progression of research in emergency medicine through these 50 years, which is written by David Yates and also by Alistair Gray, who's chair of the Arkham Research and Publications Committee. Um, and, you know, you can really see how we've progressed in that piece from very small scale research that we were doing at the beginning to now big multi-centre trials, international trials like the uh, CRASH trials, for example, that really make a difference to clinical practice. Well, absolutely. I mean, some of the big, big RCTs, which have definitely ch- had a real influence on my practice, I think that really focusing down on what you're saying is stuff which matters and makes a change to patients and has improved things like mor- mortality and morbidity. We're now integral to those, and, and Tim Coates and colleagues in the crash trials and other, you know, epidemiological studies which have been going on, they are really genuinely influencing patient care across the world, and I think we should be rightly proud of that as a specialty in the UK. Yeah, we should, we should. Um, so you can see how practice has changed as a result of the research that's being done, and you can see how the infrastructure has changed as well, our ability to deliver these large trials, thanks to things like the NIHR in the UK, have really revolutionised what we can achieve. So if we're achieving these things now, in you know, at the end of these 50 years, for example, looking at TXA in major haemorrhage, just think what we'll be achieving in another 50 years with this infrastructure that we've got now and building it even further. And there's some other articles in there about, I suppose you could think of research as, an, as one of the arms of the, against the core of emergency medicine. Research is another arm which people get engaged in. And of course, we've seen developments in other areas such as education, as pre-hospital care. We have our colleagues in emergency nursing and all of these aspects. There's, there's separate articles in the journal looking at all of those, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's a really nice piece on the use of technology in emergency medicine. It's written by a uh, guy who's uh, called Simon Lang. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, Simon Lang, legend of emergency medicine. There's another guy as well. Yeah, that'd be me. <laughs> <laughs> really nice piece. You've got to make sure you have, you have a look at that. It's looking at how we'll use technology, not only just for clinical practice, but also for education and the future of that. I think we've always attracted in emergency medicine um, early innovators, early adopters. I think it's there's something about the personality of emergency medicine which does attract us to do new and exciting things, probably due to the extremely short attention span, if you're still listening, that is. And I think we'll continue to do so. I think it's partly due to the way that we work, it's the numbers, it's the volume. We like efficiency, we like doing things quickly, and technology has given us some of those tools to do that. That's right, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, check that out, the technology, with the research, the education. We've got so much content in this special issue celebrating the 50th anniversary. We've got reflections from the president of Arkham, Taj Hassan. Uh, if you're interested in emergency medicine, you really just have to read this. It's a celebration of everything that we do. But you know what? This issue is not just about the 50th anniversary of emergency medicine. We've also got some pretty incredible research, too. Okay. And talking about technology, there's a really nice piece looking at the use of interactive voice response systems, IVRS, which is a telephone system. 
Go on. So you might normally think of these uh, IVRS systems as being something that we use to randomise patients. If you've randomised patients to certain randomised controlled trials, for example, you're often told to phone a number, enter some details about the patient, and the telephone tells you which group your patient's been randomised to. That's an IVRS. In this study, they evaluated the use of IVRS to follow patients up in clinical practice. Really? What, so you send them a phone call and they phone a computer and the computer sees how they're doing? Yeah, the, phone, the computer phones you up and asks how you are and if you have any concerns. And if you've got any concerns, then they would alert a nurse. Um, See, that, that makes a lot of sense because I get that when I take the car into the garage and there's a phone follow-up and I can sort of answer back and say whether I've had a good service experience. Well, if I can do it for you know, the car... It kind of makes sense. Although, is it a bit impersonal? Is there any concerns or worries that it might just be a little bit like speaking to, you know, speak to the machine? Well, I think it's going to divide opinion for sure. I think there'll be a group of people who think that it is very impersonal and uh, won't like it. And there'll be a group of people who'll go, wow, amazing new technology. I don't think we should bin it because uh, not everybody likes it. There's possibly something in it. I mean, can you imagine with your HomePod, your Google Home or your... Alexa, uh, Apple HomePod. I'm, I'm more of an Apple boy, but I get your point. Okay, yeah, yeah. Any of these HomePods, and you could could imagine them playing a role in your healthcare, checking you're okay. I suppose you could, because you could have say, you know, hey Siri, how am I feeling today? Or rather, Siri might ask you, how are you feeling today? Actually, this really does present quite an interesting exploration for the future, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's the tip of a, a very big iceberg potentially. Oh, good thing, you know, so Siri could tell you to take your tablets. It could indeed. could do loads of stuff. Oh, that's really exciting. I think, again, it goes back to what I was saying before about us adopting technology. That sort of thing excites me. And it'll be really interesting to see whether we can see stuff which has already been done in the commercial world transferred into healthcare. And that translation can be difficult, but really exciting to look at. Yeah. So moving on from that, we then go back into the realm of emergency cardiology. You do love a bit of cardiology, Rick. Has it got anything to do with troponin? <laughs> so it, it, it does have a little bit to do with troponin. And it, uh, so myself and Ed have written part two of our series on understanding cardiac troponin. In part one, we looked at how to avoid troponinitis. And in part two, we look at early rule-out strategies. So every emergency department uses some kind of rule-out strategy for acute coronary syndromes. Um, in this article, we've tried to appraise all of the different options and uh, give you the evidence, give you the practicalities, talk through the things that you might weigh up in deciding which one to use. Uh, So hopefully that'll be helpful for emergency physicians and also we've got a very nice piece of original research led by Jamie Greenslade in Australia which uh, analyzes the differences in clinical presentation between patients with a type 1 myocardial infarction and a type 2 myocardial infarction. Uh, Remind me, type 1, type 2? So type 1 is essentially a primary myocardial infarction caused by coronary artery disease, a plaque rupture. Type 2 is potentially contributed to by coronary artery disease, but there's something else going on. So there's actually an imbalance in the supply and demand of oxygen to the myocardium because of another condition. So it might be that the patient's had a GI bleed or septic or something else is going on. There's an arrhythmia. And they looked at the differences in clinical presentation between those groups of patients. It's quite interesting, really. Um, They presented quite similarly, I have to say. I think troponin is, and I think I said this in the previous podcast, I think it's a really interesting one to look at. And it's almost a marker when I'm speaking to people. If I start talking to them about high sensitive troponins and they go, oh, it's a terrible test, it just doesn't work, it's, there's so many false positives, kind of doesn't tell me 
that they don't know much about troponin. It tells me they don't understand diagnostics. If you can work your way through and understand how troponins can be used in clinical practice, it tells me that you understand sensitivity, specificity, probability, risk, uncertainty, utility. It's a great medium, not just to talk about cardiac diagnosis, but to talk about the principles of diagnostics in general. So I very much, I've listened to you talk about this and learned so much over the years, I'd strongly recommend that people run through this series because it will make you a better clinician in general, irrespective of whether you become better at the analysis of cardiac care. These are core stuff. This is core emergency medicine learning. Good. I hope so. I hope it's helpful. Moving on from that, we look at paracetamol. So this is a, something that I think that crops up in clinical practice quite regularly. We have lots of patients in pain. 70% of our patients are in pain. I think in about 30% of our patients, the pain is classed as severe. Um, and we'll often give those patients opiates. But if the opiates don't quite get rid of all of the pain, we're then left with a bit of a dilemma. Do we give more opiates or do we add something else, a different kind of agent? And one of the agents that we might very often use is paracetamol or for our American colleagues, acetaminophen. And um, the question we might be presented with is whether to give that paracetamol intravenously or orally. Well, clearly the intravenous is stronger because everybody tells me it is. Well, yeah, of course it is. I mean, that's what I thought as well. You know, of course, if you've got something that goes in through a drip over 20 minutes, it's got to be better than two tablets. Well, it's certainly what I tell the patients. So don't (laughs) disappoint me. What's what's the answer? So here we have a randomised controlled trial by Furiketa. I love this, that we've got a randomised controlled trial in this issue of the journal. It's very important to have RCTs. And in this randomised controlled trial, intravenous paracetamol was no better than oral paracetamol. Wow. And now that, to be honest, that is a surprise. And for a number of reasons. One, because I had been told that it was stronger in the past and I'd not looked at the original evidence, so believed it. And secondly, I kind of have that belief system. And you know, I'm not joking about this. I, I do consider myself to be an evidence-based clinician. But there is a feeling that when you do something intravenously, it is more powerful than when you give it orally or through another route. So this is really interesting. I love the stuff which challenges dogma. Yeah, totally. It just changes the way you believe, uh, the, the, way you, the way you think about things. And it certainly does that to me. Um, now, the next paper, the last one I have on the list here, uh, is also very interesting and challenges the way we think. It's about patients with major trauma. And it was from the uh, military setting, Kyle et al. And they looked at military major trauma. So these are soldiers who got major injuries and they required a blood transfusion on their way to the hospital. So not every ambulance service will do that in the civilian setting right now, but it's arguably something that we should be looking at. And what they did is they looked at uh, ionised calcium levels in these injured soldiers and they found that even after one unit of blood transfusion, ionised calcium levels dropped below the normal range quite often. And uh, in some patients, they'd been giving calcium supplementation intravenously and noticed that that ameliorated the problem. So this poses a question. Should we be giving intravenous calcium to patients who get pre-hospital blood transfusions? Well, there's the question, isn't it? Because this is very interesting. And you look at that information, you say, well, yes, of course you should. But of course, your ionised calcium level isn't a really, isn't a really that much of a patient-related outcome. We don't know necessarily whether that's a bad thing or whether it's just transient or whether it happens so it's a tricky one isn't it so it's really interesting because I didn't think it would fall so quickly I must admit but does that automatically equate that we should give it a calcium supplementation with the first unit I don't know what do you think I 
totally agree with you. You've got that question about whether it's actually clinically important for the patients to give it that early. Could we wait until they get to an emergency department? Will it have any detriment to the patient? I'm not sure that from this observational study, we can tell. Uh, maybe the authors suggest that we should be running a randomised controlled trial. Maybe we do need a larger study in order to study this a bit more carefully and find out if there are any clinical benefits to giving early calcium. But at the moment, the jury's out. Okay, so one to think about, and certainly one to think about when we're reviewing our major hemorrhage protocols, which I think is largely where this group of people exist. So really good stuff in the journal this, this month. It is sort of, I think, closing off the celebrations for the 50th anniversary. I think there's a lot that happened last year. But I'm really pleased to see this article put together. There is also a book around which you can get from the college, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, on 50 journeys in emergency medicine, um, of which I think we've both contributed to. And that's a whole series of articles looking at various different aspects. So this is an expansion of what we've had in the, in the journal this month. Delighted to have contributed to this one, um, as always, as I'm sure you are. Um, what do you want people to take away from a journal like this in terms of reflection? What, do you, what, would you, what should we ask people to do? Well, I think if you are interested in emergency medicine, it's just so important to know where the specialty came from, what our history is, and therefore gives you an idea about what the future is for emergency medicine, where we might go from here. I find it really inspiring to learn about our history. I remember when I was a first-year senior house officer in my first emergency medicine job, uh, the consultant at the time, June Edhouse, made me read about the history of emergency medicine because she observed me introducing myself as a casualty doctor. <laughs> I cringe at the thought now. Um, so I think it's really important if you're interested just to learn about the history. It, I think it will inspire you and I think it will encourage you to get more involved in influencing our future. Great and we will see you again next month. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have fun.